Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This is a show that's been created to bring to light or to make a case for the need for a centralized African culture in the African-American community and to highlight how many of the problems in the black community stem from the lack of a centralized culture. Uh, my name is Clarence Jones. I'm your host today, and I'm going to use this time to make my case um, for that need for a central culture in the African-American community and the African diaspora and how that, that lack of a central culture and that de decentralized nature has made the black community extremely vulnerable uh, and extremely inefficient historically and presently. Uh, normally, I go over and make a case and I cite books that I've read and, and write my opinions, and I talk about the, uh, the black man's uh, lack of building a civilization in, five, in, in several thousand years and how that impacts him as an individual, and it absolutely does. When I look at young black men and old black men uh, and the fact that they we haven't had to maintain our own ecosystems for centuries, and it impacts how we see ourselves as individual men, how we prepare, prepare ourselves as individual men, and how we dynamic, uh, how the dynamic between individual black men and other men, you know, how that's impacted by that. And so when you look at us, we are, uh, our vehicles are important. Uh, what kind of car you drive is very important. I've been out and I've seen black men. And, and today I, I just want to talk today about me, my observations. I'm not going to focus on history as much or books, but I want to get into what do I mean by not having your our own civilization and that impact. So let's take, and I'm looking at the black men as individuals today. And again, it's always been important to black men what kind of vehicles we drive. I like nice vehicles myself. I like to personalize them. But when you look in the mentality of black men, that seems to take precedence over important things, like teaching your kids to read, like preparing your communities, like working with other black people, like being proactive uh, over political issues. Uh, the average black man, if you gave him a nice car, he wouldn't care what you did to him or what you did in the community. And, and, and this is how they conduct themselves. They have a high, pro, uh, a high sense of antagonism with each other. Uh, you, you look at the violence that's perpetrated against them, um, some by accident, but some um, obviously uh, not by accident, uh, with not much people, uh, not, not too much concern, you have black men that are supposedly bad dudes, tough dudes, thugs, and street dudes, but you never see them any type of retaliation or reaction to the violence that's perpetrated on them, um, which wouldn't be bad if there was such an antagonism with black men. I've walked out, and, and I think what it is, I'm a big man, I think what it is is to show that they're not intimidated, I guess it's a fight or flight. People interact 
aggressively around me. Now, you can say, well, you're intimidating, you're big. No, I'm minding my own business. When I'm in a place trying to do my own thing, I've had black men come into that place purposely for no other reason. I think it was a, it was a shopping center where the man came over to where I was just not to speak, not to say hi, not to do anything like that, just to, you know, let himself know, let me know that he wasn't intimidated by me. That's how most black men think. I went into a restaurant, and I'm standing in line. And it's crazy because I'll be standing in line with 15 people. A black man was, wow, this has happened. This has actually happened several times. So I was getting my food from a restaurant and waiting uh, for a pickup line. So you would order the food, and then you come and then you stand in line, and you pick up your food. So I'm, I'm standing in line, and I guess they can see, the cooks can see what a big dude I am. Now, I, I've been working out trying to get my health right. Um, 50-something years, 53 years old, 300 pounds, so i got to be on it as far as um, trying to do the best I can for my, my health. So I, I guess I'm looking... I kind of buff or whatever, but I'm not, you know, this is not a, an aggressive, we're here, everyone's here to get food. And so, you know, the best thing I'll do, I may snatch somebody's bag and run with it, but um, it, it was a non-threatening business environment. I'm there to get food. The black male, young black males, and, and, and I will say that all the black males do is really a black male thing. They have this um, almost like, you know, like we're out in the jungle or somewhere, we're out in the wild, and there's a, there's a predator coming around, and so everyone starts acting accordingly. So the, the dude, and I think it was more than once, comes out just walking around, kind of looking back at me, not looking, but looking. And, and so this is, this is that natural antagonism that you, I see, I notice, with uh, black males. And so now... My question is, well, maybe you're tough guys. Maybe you bad dudes. Well, then why is that no no one? When, when people do crazy, horrible things to us, there's no response. If you such, if we have so many bad dudes, which we clearly don't. Uh, so that was at a restaurant, a takeout restaurant. I think the next place was at a, um, it was at Home Depot or um, Lowe's. Again, now, it's not like I'm standing somewhere and I'm standing there looking real menacing. I've been in a situation where I've been pissed off, and I've done that. And um, it, it, it's interesting how, you know, it, this was nothing to do with that. It's a line of, like, ten people, and the uh, I'm waiting in the back of the line. I'm towards the back of the line, a, a, a muscular-looking African-American male is up front waiting. For some reason, they turn around, and that's it. That's it. Oh, they must smell something or smell testosterone. I don't know. But we're all standing in line. So it's, nothing, it's not like we're, you know, fighting to get, to get to the front or anything. Everybody's waiting. But somehow, my presence causes the man to give me more attention. And so, so imagine 15 people. Maybe even 20, definitely more than 10 people in a line. I'm towards the back of the line. The black man's towards the front. 
It's all non-black people in the line. Somehow or another, that black man is always turning around looking at me, you know, real threatening. And um, so that's the, so that that was that low. Then I'm walking, and wow, this is this is the pattern. Wow, I'm, I'm putting it together. Now I'm walking, trying to get food. It's, I'm always trying to get food. It's always, <laughs> I'm always on. I'm always in a situation that the last thing on my mind is get this tool with anybody. I'm trying to get a hamburger. So I'm walking to get a breakfast sandwich at a place, and I guess the man is um, uh, there with his wife or whatever. Um, so I'm walking, and I end up talking to another gentleman who was a martial arts guy, and I wanted to talk to him because I wanted my son to uh, take, take him to the martial arts. So I'm talking to him. So what uh, this other black man, who I had not really noticed, is looking over at me, gets out of his car once he saw me, starts walking around his car and looking at me aggressively, gets in his car, leaves his door open. I'm like, you know, I'm nowhere near him looking over at me. Big looking dude. And, and that's another thing. If you're big, the other big dude. Black men, oh, wow, I guess, you know, we're we going to have to fight because we big and I'm big. And uh, it, it was just like, wow, it's pretty, it's ridiculous, this amount of antagonism from a clearly docile race of people. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not encouraging race wars or anything like that. But if you are bad, if you are the bad dude that you were supposed to be, boy, I tell you what, we... You 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 sure run you you sure run for run to find our shopping whenever anything bad happened to you, you know as far as black males, and so I think that stems from the lack of male madness, um, the lack of mentoring that exists that does not exist in the black community in the black race. So the whole concept of manhood uh, simply does not exist, uh, and you have hyper. You have hyper-aggressiveness that exposes the docile nature in black men. So it's not like if you was just bad, bad dudes, tough dudes, don't don't mess with them. They, they're all right. It's not like that's not what's happening. You rather jump on black people. You And not only do you rather jump on black people, and, and not like, okay, jumping on white people is a good thing. No. Not only do you, you rather jump on black people, you seem to seek out black people to jump on. So they, the average, they will walk by. I've been, I've been in situations where it's a whole bunch of non-black people, and so we can't say white or black. It's really not relevant. It's an it's a situation where you would think there would be a natural um, cohesion with black people. There's a natural aggressive and antagonist, and then um, again, it's a whole bunch of non-black people. It is always a black man or woman uh, that roll up on you, looking at you very aggressively. And then here's the other thing that uh, is part of the the, uh, the fractionalism and lack of unity and lack of camaraderie. We get into this speak stuff. Black people are into who speaks to who. And they... And this is this has definitely been a big issue for me that I've noticed. The people you come into a situation, 
and there are other people there, the, the black people notice you. They see you first, but wait for you to speak to them. So they, they see, like, if I see someone I recognize or someone that I think is a, uh athlete or someone, you know, notable or, or for whatever reason, even if I, you know, I'll, what's up, I'm going to say what's up to you, assuming you don't see me. Black people don't do that. They tend to, uh, at least this has been my experience, they literally will wait for you to speak to them. And it's the same antagonism and, I guess, dominance in their mind. So they're not, they're, you know, and again, of course, being an athlete, a retired athlete, I'm in a situation where I'm usually pointed out, and, and that's part of it as well, um, where people um, will say, you know, they, they start talking, and that's the football player this, the pro football player that, and they end up, instead of just saying, hey, I heard you play football, or I heard you, they will they walk around you, and they kind of hover around you, waiting on you to speak. So that's been my experience for a long time. And actually, even before I played pro, I think before that, I was not someone that was a high-status person, so no one cared. So once I became a professional, now my status has changed, and instead of being, you know, saying, hey, what's up, I heard you play ball, it's this dominance thing. That's very important to the men and women. And so uh, you see that in the black men. You, you, you see, um, you, you don't see uh, uh, them, you, you see them, it's more important to a black man that a black man respects him. He's not bothered by the fact that the whole world doesn't respect him. At least that's what it seems like to me. Uh, that's been my observation and experience that black males tend to um, be very mindful of how you treat them, how other black people and other black males treat them, and you can get yourself into something um, with them fairly quickly. And, and now, always, I've always been aware of that, that my size, if anything, would cause a black man to get a gun before he would let me just beat him up. So you have black men out there that might get into a confrontation with you, and if it's another black man, oh, yeah, he's going to get a gun. They think like that. It's almost like I don't mind what the world's done to me or is doing to me long as you don't, long as you know you're not. That seems to be his value system. Um, he's, not, he's not looking you know, the wealth requirement, acquisition of wealth is not his main priority at all. Uh, he's not He's not bothered by, he's not even bothered by the fact that black women are out distancing him, going to college more than he's going, uh, getting better jobs than he's getting. He, it, that doesn't seem to bother him. You know, whereas uh, for me, that I would at least be trying to do something when it's clear that black women are trying to do something. So these are, I think, these are parts, these are symptoms of not having to build his own civilization. And, and, and now, when you build a civilization and a society, you have to what? You have to maintain it. 
And so how can you maintain it? You don't maintain it for four, four years or 40 years. You're trying to maintain it for 400 years. So that means every male, every child born is educated, mentored, developed, challenged, um, chastised in a way to help create longevity and continuity for 400 years. That's what societies and civilizations do. So if you're selfish, that's not going to work. If you're a coward, that's not going to work in a society that's going to be here for 400 years. If you're, if you're soft, and that's certainly not um, going to help a society build. And, it, 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 and that's a very important word in the black world, who's soft or not. But yet you, you never have any type of standing up uh, when you would think there would be. But yet we, we're concerned about being soft. So um, being selfish, again, would, be, would, would, would not be conducive to having a 400-year civilization or society. Uh, lack of not being educated it would not be conducive to creating a 400-year civilization or society, not valuing education. So anybody can not be educated. All it is is, is not knowing. That's not a crime. Even whatever you know today, I don't care if you're 5 or 55, whatever you know today, there's a chance that whatever you know can become outdated in, in within a short period of time. So it's, the crime is not knowing the crime is in not trying to learn more. And then the second crime on top of that is not valuing education, which they do not do. Uh, large numbers of black. Oh, and then, of course, then, then the black men. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this goes into uh, not having a civilization. These, we, the, black, the few black men or the black men who do get into information and education think they're the only ones that know anything. So now... The smart black men get to argue amongst themselves, and there's friction between them, which, of course, that's the natural thing that black people do in general. So you, here you're supposed to be the black intellectual above all of that and helping lead the people, but you know, if you're not the center of attention, if you're not the head guy, you have a hard time working with each other. Or, or y'all, they get to arguing to see who knows the most about black history and whatever. I remember I was talking to a guy. And um, we, we were having a nice conversation. Well, I had a nice conversation with another guy, uh, and I call it dialogue, where we're having a discussion, and we are talking about information we know, and it's not, I'm not trying to tell you what I know to, as far as knowing more than you. I'm just trying to, ex to explain to you my experience. And he was explaining, explaining to me his experience uh, over a particular issue. It's pretty cool. And, you know, a lot of things are similar. Some things aren't. Some things I, had, I didn't think about. Some things I realized I see it from his perspective. Um, so that's what I call dialoguing. That's a positive intellectual interaction with a black man. A lot of black men is the opposite. They act like they're the teacher. And they'll be telling me stuff I already know. And that's the thing that's irritating. But anyway, you have this natural um, lack of continuity in, in the black race, and particularly the black male, and the ones that are educated aren't m that much better than everyone else, and you would think, and they should be. Uh, they should know better. So uh, a, a, to have a 400-year civilization, 
Education should be important. Information should be important. Training yourself should be important. Advancing yourself should be important. Competition should be something that is conducive to growth and the growth of the overall team, which is the race. Pointing uh, uh, a perfect example of that, black people have what is called false competition. I remember as a kid, and I think I'm going to get into my experiences today um, because I think I'm a little bit different than many of, of the people in the community. So I'm going to, you know, put that in there, uh, put that out there and, and, uh, and go over that today. But I, I remember as a kid, I had a cousin and uh, we were both big kids, big guys. And uh, we got into playing football early and we started to play high school football. And he started to, um, um, he was playing football at the same time I was playing football. And so, un- unbeknownst to me, we were in a kind of a competition, unbeknownst to me. Um, and again, when you're big kids, what you really don't want to be is you don't want anyone pointing out how big you are and how big you are over other people, you know. So, you don't want to, yeah, you weigh such 180 pounds, you know. When you're 12 years old, the last thing you want to do is somebody to be bringing that up. But anyway, I remember my uncle asking me, his father, how much do I weigh? And I told him, like, 100 or 180. And he said, you look bigger. I was like, wow. And uh, I was, like, 12 years old. And um, that kind of set, set me on, you know, the reality that I was in a bit of a competition with my cousin. Now, my cousin was born the same year I was born. His sister was born the same year my sister. So we are kind of, you know, we're in the same league in that regard. And I could see little comparisons, but I would just say it was more competition, you know, and false competition, meaning not encouraging competition. So anyway, we move on. Then he starts playing football in high school. I do. He... He calls, and I remember his sister saying, hey, uh, Clarence, such and such presses, I think, 200 pounds, which was good. You know, we were in, I think we were 13 at that point. And she said, uh, how much do you get? Like that. I said, no, I don't do that. I wasn't actually, I actually wasn't lifting at the time. So um, that just, it, it just something that, oh. My cousin, who's my age, and sister is my sister's age, their father is a professor. And so, and yeah, this is why I call this false competition. They are the upper, he is a college professor, somebody well-off, educated. My parents are educated, and I guess well-off or middle class, and they're middle class. Most of the people in our family are not like that. So I guess we are the, quote-unquote, bourgeois black people. And so within this bourgeois black dynamic, you know, there's some competition between me and my cousin. Uh, not, not anything I was looking for. But anyway, we, uh, we go on in, college, in high school, and then I start lifting weights, get real strong, and then start having a lot of success in football. I'm assuming he's having the same success. So uh, I'm uh, doing well. I become very highly recruited. 
And then I go to Maryland. He goes to uh, uh, another school down south. I think he goes on a football scholarship. And um, did he get hurt? I don't whatever it was. He he. There was one point where clearly there was no more competition, and I was clearly doing more than he was doing. And at that point, I just didn't hear about it again. And so. The point I'm making with this is we have that, you see, you have that false competition in black in the black community. Go, when you go to a black family reunion, everyone's happy to see each other, everybody's doing this. You also get the, what are you doing? And, and what, what, what this child is not doing, what this child is doing. People will actually lie and say stuff just to not lose faith in these public settings and, 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 and put their child up higher than what they are. Other people are looking to see when your child's not doing well. These are, you know, I think everyone does this, but for, for the black community, when we're looking at a race that hasn't had to maintain its own civilizations and society, I call that false competition because it's not something that is, moving us forward. If we were that competitive, then, and I'm talking about from the 80s to now, we always knew the Asians were the ones getting straight A's in mathematics and engineering. We knew that in the 80s. We already knew about Jews becoming doctors and lawyers. So if we were really that competitive of people, and we're the so-called bourgeois, you know, where's that thirstiness and competitiveness to compete with the people clearly doing extremely well, to compete with the people clearly putting themselves in position uh, for wealth creation, uh, for a very good uh, lifestyle in this country. So I just didn't see that. So that's why I call that false competition and indicative of a race of people that does hasn't had to create its own dynamic, create its own society, and create its own civilization, and, and how that's impacted individual black men. And I, it's also it's impacted black fail, uh, female and male interaction. It's more competitive. Uh, it isn't, well, it's not even competitive that um, a black woman, if you want a black woman to do something, you have a black male tell her not to do it. You know, so that's the general interaction between black males and females. And, and or you have the black males that want to mate with the black females and, you know, want to assume the dominant position, but they're not doing anything dominant in society. So, you know, they marry the woman or have a have a boyfriend and girlfriend, have a baby. Uh, the black male, which understandable, wants to be the male wants to be the dominant, but you're not dominating your ecosystem anywhere. You're not dominating society the way you could and should, and maybe maybe there's obviously restrictions on you. So I definitely obviously understand that being a black male, but it does it also doesn't seem to bother that you uh, it doesn't seem to bother him that he's in that position. So then he comes and turns around and wants a dominant position with the black female within the relationship. Uh, within the marriage, um, giving babies uh, to them. I don't know. Hopefully they're not doing this, but definitely a black man did not mind giving a black woman a couple of days. 
that was some something that he saw himself as zero, making a lot of babies, but you can't take care of them. So what, the, what you're doing only confirms your lack of manhood. And so that goes into, uh, you know, that's, that's another example of the black male uh, being uh, negatively impacted by the fact that he has not had to maintain his own civilization. He has not had to, he has not had a need to maintain his own society. And so that's uh, another example. Today I wanted, again, like I said before, today I wanted to get into me as a child and my interaction within the black community. So, uh, and, and how that kind of focuses in on what I'm talking about as black zombie nations and, and not having to build and maintain our own society. Oh, and, and as far as black zombie nations, you have a, a, a people that just don't understand power as it, as it should, how it works, and how to make it work for them. We, we tend to be proactive. We, we, we tend to be reactive instead of being proactive. And so uh, that's, and I definitely see examples of black zombie nations that I'd love to talk about it at another time, but today I'm really talking about me. So, okay. My father, Clarence Sr., uh, went to uh, Kentucky State University on a football scholarship. Uh, he was very fortunate and very blessed to get that scholarship. He knew if he hadn't gotten that scholarship, he was, was going to the military because where he lived in North Carolina, that was the only option you had. You really didn't have many options in that town. He was a smart kid. He was a leader, but there just wasn't, there weren't that many outlets for that for him growing up. But he was a great football player. So when he got to college, to Kentucky State, he knew this was his one shot. And he knew he had to get this. He had to make this happen. And so he was someone in college on a mission, like most a lot of people. Unfortunately, I wasn't like that, but <laughs> uh, and I think the socioeconomics were different, and that was a major uh, part of that. We'll get into that. But anyway... He was a man on a mission at Kentucky State. He was captain of the football team. I think he was captain of the baseball team. He was definitely a big man on campus, a leader, and um, became successful. He met my mother at campus on, at Kentucky State. My mother's from uh, Bessemer, Alabama, and uh, they became an incredible team and indicative of that era in history where blacks were coming out of the southern uh, rural areas and getting opportunities at colleges, and they made the best of them and did very well. My mother uh, went into teaching, and so you have two young, educated black people coming to New York in the 60s, late 60s. Um, I was born in 68, and they had a, an apartment in the early 70s. My sister was born in 67. So um, they were doing well. And the interesting thing about it, they were doing well, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were living well. 
So they were living in the same apartment that yeah, I guess that plays into this as well. There were the, the, the Barack Obamas and Michelle Obamas, when they're young, essentially live in the same places that the working class people live. Bus drivers, uh, cab drivers, people that work for the post office, people that probably wait tables and stuff. Because when they're young, they're not making that money. They have student loans. They're going to college. So they're like everyone else. As time goes on and they acquire degrees and get education, they acquire jobs and they acquire a, a quality of life and a living standard that continues to go up. So in the early 70s, they start out in the same place as everyone else, but they tend to not end in those places because they get degrees and they allows them to buy nice homes in suburbs. And so essentially... That's what happened to, to my parents, Dolly and Clarence Jones uh, Sr. So they came to New York. They were living in apartments. My cousins, my, his, my two of his sisters, let's see, my aunt T.C. So one sister uh, lived in New York. Uh, two lived in Philadelphia. My, uh, his uncle uh, lived, his brother lived in Boston. His other brother lived in Philly. So he had two sisters. And a brother in Philly, my father had, and he had a sister in New York. And then, of course, you had a, uh, in the early 70s, what you notice with poor people, just like the Mexican people, uh, just like uh, immigrants, when they come to new territory, they, they come and then they send for their family or they send for other families. And it becomes a rallying point for other people that want to come to that particular area because the people who are already there know the workings of the new place. So someone, and it's the same way for the people from my father's hometown of Tarboro, North Carolina. Uh, the people from Tarboro went to D.C., Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and Brooklyn. So what ended up happening, there was a nice little nucleus uh, community of people from my father's hometown up there in New York with him when he was young. He and my mom were young. And it was the same thing with my mother. My mother had, let's see, wow, my mother had three sisters in New York that came up from the South. Um, and she lived with one at first when she left college. So what happens is the black people who migrated from the South, uh, trying to get a better opportunity, fleeing segregation, would come up and work as domestics. And so I think, I, I think at least two of my, Aunt, at least one was a domestic. One, one of my aunts was a domestic her whole life. Uh, my aunt Jessie, who lived in, in Jersey. Uh, I had another aunt in Philly who was a domestic her whole life. But a lot of them came up, worked as domestics until they could get better jobs, and then moved on. Their siblings from college would come and sometimes work with them uh, and, and would definitely live with them. So I think my father did that in New York at first. So you're talking about a lot of people from my father's hometown, even though he was living in New York, still saw a lot of people from his hometown and they had their own little community up there. And so now, Clarence and Sally, like I said, initially the Obamas, I think they're a perfect example, um, law school kids, when they're young, they live where everyone else lives because their money, their money's not right like that. They're not, they don't have 
of that income level, but it's coming. And so the same thing happened with my mom and dad. They were living in an apartment. In the, I think they live in the same apartment complex as, as his sister. And so um, with my uncle. Now, my uncle ended up having a good job as, as well. My uncle was a, he wasn't a tradesman. He was a mechanic that worked on cars. He had special, um, he had special skills, which and my father always said, your uncle makes more money than me. You know, maybe not now, but he, he made a lot of money in what he does. So, um, which is an interesting dynamic that we learned about my uncle and my father. There was a lot, apparently there was a lot of resentment in my aunt's husband for my father that my father never knew about, that we never knew about, my cousin told me. So get to get into the lack of continuity in the, the natural, um, the, the lack of continuity in the black community. And so this is definitely an example out of my father, educated man, um, he and who who wasn't making that much money, but had a college degree that ultimately gave him opportunities to move up. And my uncle apparently was resentful of that and talked and said a lot of stuff behind his back. Yeah, yeah, but where's your big shot brother? Get your big shot brother to do this. Was he was arguing with my aunt about so. These are the little things that are indicators of, of, of a race of people that really are not are too fractionalized and factualized to move strongly in one direction as far as power, uh, power acquisition. So, again, Clarence and Sally, uh, my, job, my mom gets a job as a teacher working in New York City. Great benefits, union dues, and what have you. Uh, my dad starts going to college on the weekends. I think my mom starts going to uh, undergraduate. See now, when you when you when you're working uh, for the city, and in, in, in particular as a teacher, you can make good money and make a good career, but you have to get degrees. You have to get postgraduate degrees, and so that's how you go up. So my mother was going to school, and my father was going to school. So eventually, they both got uh, master's degrees. I think my father got two master's degrees. Why did he get a PhD? I don't know. But that allowed them to acquire um, bigger and better salaries, even within the New York City school system. And so they moved to Long Island, and they created a middle-class life for me and my sister, Georgette, which is, you know, that's, you know, that's the American dream, and that's the American way. Uh, what we noticed, what I noticed, is there was a, a change in people. There was a change in how people saw us, and that kind of, I saw that throughout my life. So first, as a kid, uh, I remember my going back to North Carolina, as a kid, and my sister being is really light skinned. Of course, black people have a bunch of light skinned people all over, and the you know the, the ramifications behind that, or or, or you know uh, race mixing or uh, mulattoes, or you know the, the the thing was the in slavery the masters would have their way with the slave women, making light skinned mulatto babies. So that's where it originally came from, and 
it was something that was uh, looked at in some areas negatively, but then some people think they're better than you because they like it. So the black community has always struggled with that since slavery, during slavery, and even till today. As a matter of fact, during the New Orleans, uh, the, the social clubs uh, had what is called a brown paper bag rule. And if you were darker than a brown paper bag, you could not become a part of their social clubs in New Orleans, the important ones, the black ones. And so that, you know, stems from slavery and the caste system and, and really which was used to keep the slaves divided. It's really to keep black people in, in, this, in labor and the people, poor people in general, any way that can be used to keep poor people divided is used. And so that's one. And so the brown paper bag was one. When you go back and you look at um, black, a lot of HBCUs, particularly in the light, in the uh, 1920s, you look at the pictures, mostly light-skinned um, people. I remember in one of the famous churches in New York, um, the great Marcus Garvey, apparently there was such a hierarchy that light-skinned people would sit in certain parts of the church in the big, well-to-do churches in New York City at the turn of the century. And Marcus Garvey, the great leader, uh, black nationalist leader, said, I'm going to break that and he's going to go sit in the area. And he always got his ass <laughs> doing this. And so that's how strong that was with it. So that's something that's always been uh, something we've always struggled with in the black community, good and bad, meaning some people not liking light-skinned people or light-skinned people thinking they're better than because they're light-skinned. So we've always struggled with that uh, reality, with that dynamic. So anyway, I'm four or five years old. We're, we're the, I guess we're the Huxtable, not knowing. But my mom and dad, you know, work hard in school, and we're doing a little bit better than other people. Um, not that you really, I couldn't notice that, to be honest with you. But anyway, we go down south, and we went somewhere at someone's pool party, and I remember my sister being so uncomfortable because everybody was staring at her. And she was very light. But she, you know, she does not look mulatto. She just looks like a light-skinned African-American female. And so that was my first uh, experience in realizing that we're all black people, but we're not all the same, and we, not, we don't all look the same, or, or we don't all think the same, and we don't all think the same about each other. You know, we're, 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 we're not all one big happy family. So that was an example of that. Um, when we moved to Long Island, we, uh, I remember the, the family looking at us different. Well, you know, I, my, my, I think my dad was the first and only person on his side of the family to go to college. So they looked up to him, you know, in a way uh, because of that. And I just remember... Uh, you know, the, the, everyone looking at him, everybody wanted to come out to our house for vacation, not vacation, but for holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, and I also remember people not doing as much when we came. And I remember, uh, you know, 
cousins interacting with you is just kind of different, like you bourgeois or what have you. And I remember when I first realized what a bourgeois person is, I immediately thought to myself, this is what my cousins think we are. And and this now these are my cousins in in uh, Queens, who at the time were getting into uh, what is they call it the five percent nation. It was um, it was basically a form of black nationalism. Uh, the kids were revolting against basically racism, and um, the five percenters were a sect of the nation of Islam. So what happens is kids know what's really going on. They know that's what's wrong with the world. They don't know how, they don't know what to do, but they know that this system is not necessarily for them, particularly poor kids or particularly black kids. So they they lash out in some instances, uh, and in some instances they try to form their own ideology and their own things. And the five percent nation was this. It basically started in jail, and um, it was. They, they would change their names. And so all my cousins in Queens were, were doing this, and they were trying to be smart. They were trying to get into their own history, but it was something that, you know, you, you're not a Muslim. So, you know, what, is, what, is it, what does it all mean? So it, it was, um, they called themselves God. Uh, and so, but they, they had this more black nationalist mentality. And so, of course, they saw us as bourgeois, you know, Negroes, as bourgeois sellout, you know, Huxtable uh, Negroes before there was a Huxtable. So I, I, had, I always remember that dynamic with them. Uh, and then, of course, they also prided, which my mom always said. They, you're, you have to watch your cousins. You got to love them. They are proud of you, but they would love if you fall too. So they would love for you to see that you, you know, you're not so big and mighty. So when you with them, don't get into the negative stuff that they're getting into, because you know they don't mind you getting in trouble. They don't mind you doing something. They'll, if anything, feel better about it because you are supposed to be someone that's better than them because you're living better. You're living in the suburbs. So I remember that. I remember living in the suburbs when we moved to uh, our street in Long Island, which was a nice place. They had good jobs. Uh, my father was the educated black leader type. So he was the president of the Civil Civic Association of Central Iceland. So he was viewed by other people differently. He was a big, smart, big, big-time black man. He was the head of this. He was the. Uh, he ran the. He was the. Um, not the project manager. He was the executive director of the uh, of a human service agency, and he was well known in the in the city. He was well known in, in Long Island. I, I definitely it was nothing for me to see him on TV talking about issues in the community. So he was viewed, you know, as a small scale. Um, Barack Obama type, you know, not that he, he probably should have ran for office, but he, he wasn't that type of guy. I think he came out really, and it goes to black civilization and black zombie nation. Somebody like my father should have been steered towards business ownership and creating wealth within the community. But his generation 
uh, move towards uh, activism, which is clearly a good thing, um, activism, education, and, and uh, human service types of things, and not enough of us of his generation was steered towards wealth creation. So that's starting their own businesses, working in black businesses, uh, so that you can help other people, black people uh, work in their own business, you know, create their own businesses and create wealth within the black community and acquiring a power to that. Uh, so he, brought, he definitely should have been steered towards that. He was not, uh, and he wasn't that interested in it. And I think, yeah, he, he should have been steered towards it, and also with the politics, but the politics was a bit dicey because, again, you had a black community that really didn't vote like that. They weren't that savvy. So as a black man, what power did you really have if you were getting into I understand why he didn't go that direction because he would not have been able, he would have basically been forced to cater to white people. And even regardless of party, because the black people were not that organized, were not consistent voting blocks, um, did not have the wealth to get behind specific um, candidates. Matter of fact, if anything, they would be more resentful of you, which my, I, I, I got a lot of resentment looking back just on my street because my father was supposedly a big shot. So what goes on in society, whatever the, kid, the parents are talking about, the kids are right there listening. And so if they're resentful of these educated black people, their children are going to be resentful of these so-called educated black people. They're going to start calling you educated black people names, you know, bougie, uh, uh, whatever, they, whatever comes into mind to talk negatively about you, they're going to do that stemming from their parents. And I'm pretty sure, thinking back, a lot of that, a lot of that flat, my sister and I caught. And so I remember that we were the others. We weren't just like every other black. And now, even when we wanted to, even when I wanted to be down, my, my role model as far as my, my uh, age group was Big Daddy Kane. No, I wasn't worried about being Martin Luther King. I wasn't worried about even being Ali. I want to be like Big Daddy Kane. So I was trying to get down with the clothes, the styles, and what have you. But I was not viewed by like that by uh, my peers like that. And I'm realizing I was a dirty, corny type of black person, black dude, and, and as well as my sister. I remember uh, this is – she actually said that uh, when she was my sister in high school, as a senior, was, um, was in the senior play, and she was an honor student attractive young woman and she was in she was with the smart kids, the nice kids, the kids that were doing something. And she walked through the um, to this day she does not know who said it. She's walking through the gym by herself, mind her own business, and somebody yelled, There she goes, there she goes, miss it. And my uh, sister to this day does not know who said it. But she knows somebody yelled that as she was walking through the gym by herself. Now, my sister was attractive. She was in on her, smart. She was definitely someone going someplace. And I also remember um, there being some flack about the senior play 
and the fact that there were black people in, but there were only light-skinned black people in the play, and they're being black over that. So that's a lot, you know, that was a little bit, a little example of, uh, of, of being the Huxtables and being Theo Huxtable, being that middle-class um, uh, African-American bo- male and trying to fit into the, the African-American spaces that you wanted to fit into. Again, I wanted to be in the Big Daddy Kane spaces. I was not worried about being in the upper-middle-class black spaces, the fraternities, those societies, because I saw those people as sellouts anyway, and they didn't have any real power. And so, but I wanted to be in the, you know, the urban, the hip hop spaces, high school and college. And the truth of the matter is, I was not necessarily accepted in those spaces, particularly in college. Not not so much in, in high school because I was with a good, uh, I was with a group of guys that were. But it's interesting that once I went to college where I was by myself and, uh, and, and so the kids at Maryland were University of Maryland were a lot of urban kids and a lot of country kids from Virginia uh, and uh, Western PA which is a big high school football hotbed. Those kids were really uh, rural, which I was not or really urban and, and D.C. urban so when I got to Maryland and then I'm an arrogant dude, so uh, I did not fit in. And I think I'm what is called, what I would call misaligned. I saw myself as going to be the next Big Daddy Kane, the great uh, rapper. And he was kind of the, Big Daddy Kane was the big man of my time, of, of my generation. He was the dark-skinned black man that all the women liked. So, of course, as young black males, we looked up to Big Daddy Kane, the rapper. When we talk about the mid-80s, um, 86 to 90, it was all about Big Daddy Kane and, and uh, LL Cool J. But, you know, that was my, that's who I aspired to be like, if anything. But I was not that guy. You know, I was Theo Huxtable. And so Theo Huxtable did not fit in into the urban uh, city type of guy. You know, I stuck out. And also, in high school, on my block, and I, I definitely, looking back, I did not understand it then, but I understand it now as I became a professional athlete living in other people's neighborhoods and seeing how the kids interact with people. My father being the quote-unquote, big-shot black man on the community. And again, Central where I lived, was a very nice community. It was a community, but it was not a community of, it was not, see, that's why people call me the Huxtables. kind of funny, because the Huxtables, the mom is a, a lawyer and the father is a doctor. Well, that was not Central Islip. That was not my neighborhood. Central Islip was a nice place for police officers, bus drivers, People that work for the post office in Long Island, they work. I think they work for Grumman, the aircraft um, builder, um, cab drivers, if anything. Teachers uh, was that. So that's who that community com- was comprised of. Nurses. People worked at the nursing homes and worked at the. Um, uh, there was a psychiatric 
house uh, place not far from there. People work there. Good, steady jobs that uh, afforded their children uh, a good lifestyle. So nothing to be, uh, certainly not to, to be ashamed of. They did amazing things. That generation, my parents' generation, put so many kids in position to go to college. It was, wasn't even funny. But my father, being an educated black man, put him at, I guess, the top of the food chain. So the little resentment that uh, existed, I think, stemmed from that. I think it stemmed from my father being uh, a big-time black man in my neighborhood and the kids interacted with me uh, differently. So, you know, those are, those are the little things. No way. Um, it's amazing getting into this this week, um, talking about my personal experience. I, I'll have to do it next time. I ran out of time. Um, I've just, I wanted to make, I wanted to bring up being different and the lack of continuity in the African-American community and to show how the importance of creating that, that platform where we are all see, where we all see each other and see ourselves as the same, and we may be different on on certain things, different jobs, different whatever, but all being on the same page, knowing that we're moving this way, that's what civilizations and societies do. And since we don't have that, we do not have that continuity between between us, and so there are more people telling you you're not like me within the black community, then there are, hey, we all one. And there are more people saying, since you're not like me, I don't really want to be bothering with you, then, hey, we're not, we're not exactly the same, but we all are on the same mission, so we got to find a way to work together. We don't have that enough. And so that was, uh, I wanted to give a little bit of an example and some, some uh, illustrations of my personal experiences uh, I'll do some more the next time we speak. Uh, thank you so much for your time this week. Uh, this is Clarence Jones signing off from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society Talk Show. Thanks again.